0: The one thing that, that I've learned in life is nobody likes change and everyone will do everything that they can not to change, but change is always good and out of change great things always happen and I think that you need to to, to challenge yourself and get yourself out of your comfort zone and, and make the changes necessary because that's, that's how to stay alive in this industry, constantly change.
1: This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Much has changed in the hospitality sector, not just the colour and vibrancy of different cuisines and the rolling evolution of gastronomy, but the way restaurants function, the culture, the environment, the way career paths are created and not like they once were. How much have things changed and what impact does that have on those that grew up on the old world of hospitality and are now success stories in the new world of hospitality? Michael Lambie is an award-winning chef and restaurateur and one of Australia's very best chefs. Michael, how are you?
0: I'm great, Anthony. Great to be on.
1: It's great to have you on. You're influence is astounding both in the UK and, and Australia but your career has really been all about change and evolution
0: that's that's right I think um, yeah it it's a funny it's been a funny career and it, and it hasn't always I haven't always thought that I was going to change and, and innovate but um, you know it's just the way things have r- rolled for me since, since the beginning.
1: Well, your influence in Australia has been uh, astonishing. But you're from the UK originally. When, when did you first get interested in in food?
0: Uh, I, that's a good question. I, I I actually grew up in a in the hospitality industry. My my mum and dad um, were publicans, and uh, they they owned a, a huge pub in Basildon in Essex, and uh, I just sort of got interested in the in the the drinks and the food side from a very very early age um, i used to for pocket money i used to help out in the kitchen so i used to sort of peel all the potatoes and we had a big like chipping machine so i used to cut all the chips and wash all the salads and you know there was about five cooks that worked there and uh, and i kind of kind of just sort of got really interested in in food and and the sort of hospitality culture, and it sort of just grew from there. And, and I'm, I'm talking, Anthony, when I was like 12 years old. Wow. This was, Yeah. So I kind of always had a path. I always knew that I was going to be involved in, in the
1: hospitality industry
0: in some way, shape, or form.
1: When you got your qualifications, you actually, at a really young age, left the UK. Uh, tell, tell us why that happened and what you did.
0: Well, what happened, I'll tell you, the story was is that um, I'd done my apprenticeship at Claridge's in London, and um, I'd done my appren- I started my apprenticeship when I was 17, and um, the the head chef there, his name was John Williams. He had a huge influence on my career, and, you know, it, working as a 17-year-old first-year apprentice chef in a kitchen like Claridge's with, you know, a hundred chefs in it was pretty daunting, and uh, I mean, I couldn't even tie my apron up, let, let alone hold a knife properly. But I, I kind of got really interested in, in um. Just in the whole culture of the kitchen and the way that it was all running, and and you know there's the commies and the apprentices and the chef de parties, and it was really really classical there. And Mr. Williams, um, he kind of set me on my path. He kind of said to me, you know if you want to be really good, you need to knuckle down, you need to learn the basics, you need to get yourself overseas, you need to see it all. And I kind of started reading books and and it all sort of just grew from there. Like it it was amazing.
1: And you ended up in uh, Munich for a little while.
0: Yeah. So from there, um, the the executive chef, uh, Mario Lesnik, he he got me um, a position working in Munich in Germany, which was – in a two-star restaurant called the Kuniczoff, and you know that that was just absolutely unbelievable. I um, I, I went over to Munich as a you know an 18-year-old kid, um, had no idea. My mum was telling me not to go, but you know the actual. Organization and the food was just like next level, you know. And the, the, it was it was a hard place to to work. The Kunix off. It was um, really really busy, which was something that I never sort of envisaged. Um, I always thought that these great restaurants would be really kind of quite manageable and quiet, but it was busy, and um, and I, I absolutely loved it. And I met an Australian guy there that actually um, put me in contact with Mr. Roo at the Waterside Inn, and it was Waterside Inn, three Michelin stars. Um, and I wrote them a letter, because back then there wasn't emails. So <laughs> I wrote them a letter, and they, they gave me a trial. And, and I went, I actually went back to the UK for Christmas, and I had a trial at the Waterside Inn and uh, got the job, Um Started. They said to me, "You can start in February on Valentine's Day." I just sort of dropped every, yeah, dropped everything from uh, from Germany and went back to the UK and went to the Waterside Inn and, uh, you know, another step up, another step up in kind of organisation and and the way that the the kitchen was run and the cleaning, the cleaning, cleaning everything all the time. And, and I, you know, I started there and I kind of, by that time, I, I really had the bug. And um, I actually stayed there for three years. And, you know, I, I worked in the larder section and I'd done hot entrees and I'd done uh, the back of fish, like filleting fish and learning all that side of it. And then I was uh, chef de party on the fish section which was in a, in a, an amazing experience. And um, from there, I had a colleague of mine that was working at Harvey's, which was Marco Pierre White. And I got an opportunity to go and work with Marco Pierre White when he, when he was kind of just bursting on, well, he was already on the scene. You know, he was a two-star restaurant. He was the youngest chef to have two Michelin stars so I, I moved up to London and, and went to work with Marco, which was uh, an interesting experience, but something that I treasure.
1: Well, tell us a bit about that period. Is one of the world's most known chefs. You were the head chef at Harvey's for a number of years. Do you have any um, memories or stories you can tell us about what it was like working with him in that kitchen?
0: Uh, I mean, it, the, the, I used to be on tender hooks every day going into work, thinking to myself, what's going to happen today? And, you know, he, he was, you know, a, an amazing man, and um, but hard and, and crazy. And, you know, there, there was times where, you know, he'd walk into the kitchen. I remember on one occasion he walked into the kitchen and he said, I don't want any more personal phone calls coming through the landline for Harveys. And at that point, the phone rang in the kitchen. And he answered the phone, and it was for somebody in the kitchen. And it, he ripped the phone off the wall and smashed it up with a meat cleaver and said, do you all understand that I don't want any more personal calls? And like, it, was, it was funny, but it was really scary. But um, in terms of my career, I think you know Marco opened a lot of doors for me, and also um, it gave me a really big insight into the into the industry because he was so successful. And it was through um, a contact of his that I that I met some. I actually met somebody that was living in Melbourne, and I had the opportunity to come to Melbourne and. I think that you know, you, you reach these kind of crossroads in your life, and, and you go, you know, should I go to Melbourne or should I stay working in London with Marco? And you know, I was going to open a restaurant with Marco and you know, be the next hot chef in London, or, or do you just sort of throw caution to the wind and just drop it all and go to Melbourne? And I kind of, my dad said to me, son. You know, this is an amazing opportunity. You don't know what's going to happen, so I I decided to drop it all and and come and come to Melbourne, and um, and you know, like I think sometimes when you do stuff like that, you're you're kind of forced to to really kind of you know get your act together. And um, when I when I got to Melbourne, I, I had a some some colleagues here that I knew from London. That kind of pointed me in the right direction, and uh, you know, I, I spoke to all the big names when I got here, which was you know your Philip Michel's and your Jacques Ramans, and you know, and I decided that I had a I had a very really a very interesting meeting with um, the Van Handel family at the Stoke House, and I really really kind of was captivated by. By their vision of what they wanted the Stoke House to be, so I, I decided that I would pursue that angle. So uh, you know, at the ripe old age of, of twenty five, I was I was the head chef at the Stoke House, and uh, it was that was <laughs> that was pretty daunting as well because I, when I got there, it was you know pretty disorganised and and not that well run. So. It was quite a challenge for me, not only to try and lift the standard of the food and make my own mark, but also get everything organised and get the right team and get everything running really smoothly. Which which was which is a challenge, but it was
1: fantastic. You won many awards at your, with your time there. Tell us about the sort of food you were cooking then. Well, well,
0: what what I wanted to do was I, I kind of wanted. Back back then, you know, Melbourne was had a a very different landscape to what it has now. So I I sort of came in doing sort of, sort of modern Australian but classic European. So it was I had a lot of sort of French influenced dishes on the menu and also a lot of sort of Mediterranean-style dishes as well, um, and some Italian dishes. So it was kind of a bit of a melting pot, which is what Australia really is essentially. But that that was the style then, and that was the style that I implemented. And, and bearing in mind it was super, super busy there, and um, I had to sort of create a menu that, that I would be able to sort of implement for the masses. And during my time at Marcos, Marco opened a restaurant in Chelsea Harbor called The Canteen. And that was kind of this great big brasserie style restaurant. So I kind of took elements from that and and mixed it into into the Stokehouse which was which was um, well it was it was really good, you know. It, it kind of elevated the Stokehouse to to what it should have been, you know. It was really good. Good, smart service, great wines, um, great drinks, and great food. And I think that before I got there, there was there wasn't the great food element.
1: Circa the Prince has uh, has the most incredible alumni of chefs that came from from that restaurant, which you set up way back in 1998. And tell us about the building that restaurant and what you created there, and the challenges involved.
0: Yeah, look, that that was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. <laughs> um, I got the opportunity with the Van Handels. The Van Handels purchased the the Prince of Wales and, and sort of came to me and said, look, you know, we've got a, long, a long-term plan with you and what we'd like to do is to go into business with you and we're going to be opening a signature restaurant and we'd like you to head it up. And that's kind of where... Circa was born, and you know it was it was a huge challenge for me because I was a young man. I kind of really wasn't that experienced in kitchen design and you know <clears throat> buying furniture and bar setups and you know um, all all the systems and procedures and cashing on and cashing off it was It was a whole new world to me, but it was something that I was really. Really interested in, and I think that um, the launch of Circa was, you know, probably one of the highlights of my career and the most proudest moments of my career because it was a it it kind of was a restaurant that was really ahead of its time. I think when it when it launched, and it wasn't that wasn't just because of me. I think that that was because of all the people involved, and um, you know, we launched this restaurant and. You know the the interior design was amazing. The furniture was amazing. The place looked fantastic. And as soon as as soon as we opened, it was just boom. We were
1: we were busy. Well, it ended up winning best new restaurant, three chef's hats. Uh, what, what sort of pressures were on you, and and how did you deal with the pressures of that sort of success?
0: I. Look, I, I did put a lot of pressure on myself and um I was I was just kind of um just doing what I do and trying to surround myself with the right people in order for for the restaurant to achieve the, the goals that I wanted it to achieve. And you know, I, I mean I was so humbled that we we was nominated for Gourmet Traveller Restaurant of the Year in our first year. We won three chef's hats. Um, we won Best New Restaurant in the Age Good Food Guide. It was um, quite, quite a journey and, um, you know, very, very difficult to sort of keep your feet on the ground and keep focused on, on what the long-term objective was. But an amazing time, hard work. But, you know, I think that back then, in the style of food that I was cooking, um, I I was really, really, really happy, you know, like modern Australian food, three chefs' hats, using all the best produce that I wanted to use. It it was
1: a brilliant time. Your uh, interest in food started to change um, a couple of years on from that, and um, taxi dining room sort of marked your sort of push into um, Asian influences on your on your cooking. Why did that happen?
0: I think that that's that's a it's a really interesting question, Anthony. I think that I think like everything in the world, everything moves fast. Look at technology. Look at mobile phones—the way that they've they've grown in the last twenty years—and I think that the hospitality industry and food is is very very similar you know when i when I landed in Australia, it was very cafe cultured Italian, and you know then it went through this kind of more european French style and I just noticed that people 's eating habits had changed, and there was a lot more a lot more kind of Asian people starting to come into the into Melbourne into Australia, the whole multicultural side. And it was kind of like, well, you know, like the food that I'm cooking was really kind of inspired from from the French cuisine, from my time working with Marco and and my time working with Mr. Rue, and it was kind of like you, you need to you need to change it up, Michael. You know, you need to you need to look at what you're doing, and you need to. Be a bit more innovative and come up with something that's gonna be sustainable for a long time. So I just kind of decided that it was time to reinvent myself. And you know, by then I'd been at Circa for five or six years, I can't remember, and and I had an option to get out, as 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 you do, as I was a partner there. Um I had an option to get bored out, and I took that option. And I had a, a little bit of time off and had a had a think about what I wanted to do. And then all of a sudden, Taxi just came along. And Taxi is probably the best restaurant I've I've ever been involved in with um, with Paul Mathis. And you know, I think that um, that was just great. It, we just the design I'd done some research on the food I had like all this like Japanese Asian style food but all food that was really really well sourced really really well cooked um I had a great team that sort of followed me from circa and bang that that was just unbelievable that, that was just something that only dreams are made of, you know, when you get into an environment like that and and you've got the synergy of all the people that are all pressing in the right direction. And, you know, to win Restaurant of the Year in our first year at Taxi was just,
1: you know, unbelievable. What was it like for you, a chef trained in classical French and European techniques, trying to bring in Japanese um, techniques and ingredients were there challenges involved in that sort of uh, evolution?
0: Oh, I, yeah, un, undoubtedly. Look, it, it's really hard, and you know, like the 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 Asian flavours are, are are dealt with differently. And um, I was lucky enough to, to work with a, a couple of very good Japanese chefs. Uh, Kinsan, who was who was a Japanese chef there, showed me um, the way to go with using the Japanese produce. And I, I had a real kind of affinity with Thai flavors as well. So I was g- going to cooking classes in Thailand, learning about Thai food. And I think it's just a, an evolution. You know, you've just got to – I think that you can always use – like I do now, it's like you've always got the principles of the French cuisine, but you marry that with some Thai flavours, with some Japanese flavours, and you've just got to get, get it right. And, and, you know, that's that's my style.
1: You also embarked um, and created a few gastropubs as well, fearing away from uh, the Asian sort of uh, influence that you were immersing yourself with. Um, tell us a bit about the modern gastro pub and what it took to build those
0: yeah look i um, i always had this this obviously coming from england and obviously coming from a pub background i always thought to myself that um, a, a modern pub in australia would work really well and you know it has to be a really nice environment inside with really good food and but really good pub food and i'm i'm not talking like palmers and stuff i'm talking like like really good smart well executed pub food with good ingredients and i kind of thought with some a really good wine list but not too expensive and some good drinks and some good beers you could you could create something really fantastic and um i while I was at Taxi, I, I got an opportunity. I, I met an amazing woman called Pam Lamaro, who opened a. Um, she she sort of shared my vision. She opened a, a pub in South Melbourne called Lamaro's after her name, and um, she asked me to get involved with her. And um, after after a bit of deliberation, and obviously I spoke with the people from Taxi, and uh, I I. Uh, yeah, I jumped at the chance, and and we we turned that into exactly what my vision was, and we shared like Pam and I shared the same vision, and we created this an amazing gastro pub with great food, great drinks, and uh, that that was something that I I absolutely loved. I loved it there, but business is business, and uh, and a, a Big corporation came along and wanted to buy us, so we sold. We sold out, and uh, it was really sad, actually. But um, you know, business is business, and you've got to do what you've got to do. So i sold out of Lamaro's, and within I don't know four months of selling out of Lamaro's, um, I decided that it was time to do. The next, the next generation of Lamaras, which was, you know, something that was bigger, something that had um, bigger event spaces, uh, something that I could sort of develop the food and do a, a different style of food, and and that's where the Smith was born. And um, look, that was an incredible journey. The Smith, we we. We, cre- we created this. Sorry, it's funny when I think about it. But I had an amazing team that came with me. Um, at, at that stage, I'd I I'd, um, I'd decided to get myself out of taxi as well. So I had sort of a, a 12-month break. And um, a lot of the people from taxi followed me, um, both kitchen and front of house. Um, and... The Smith was was a was a really really good acquisition in, into the sort of hospitality sector of Paran. It was um, you know, really good fo- really good food. I'd say sort of not pub food, but like elevated pub food. And we had a a, a really good focus on on really good cocktails, and a, a, we had a fantastic wine list, and. You know, we, within sort of three weeks of opening the doors, um, the Smith just took off. It was a, an absolute monster. It was like, you know, it was actually scary <laughs> going into work because it was that busy.
1: Your uh, fascination with Asian uh, cuisine uh, led to the opening of Lucy Lou, um, one of the, the busiest and noisiest restaurants in in Melbourne. Um, T- tell us about that restaurant and and where that idea came from.
0: Well, yeah, look, I I, I got an opportunity to buy in to I think it was a, a French restaurant called PM Twenty Four. I think the the made anyway, um, I yeah, I got an op- opportunity to buy in, and I always had this idea. I remember that I went to Chin Chin when Chin Chin first opened, and it blew my socks off, and it blew my socks off not because I thought that the food was amazing, like the food's really good and, and uh, the techniques are great, but just the whole operation of it and, and, and the thought process behind it, and it was, it was kind of like, you know what, this is the future, this is the future, this is the style, this is the style that people want. And you know the ambience and the, the the energy, and you know delicious food and and I kind of thought that in that little pocket to do a kind of Asian style restaurant and and not you know not the same as Chin Chin or not the same as anybody else with our own sort of unique identity, it it could it could be a real sort of you know crackerjack restaurant and i had done a. I'd, I did a lot of research on um, on food. I went to I went with um, the architect that was that um, I hired to to do the renovation with Lucy Liu. I went to Shanghai, Hong Kong, and we sort of all got inspired with with different styles of food. And um, yeah, I think that it's. I think I think. In all honesty, Anthony, I think Lucy Lou, and I suppose it's because it became it came a bit later in my career. Lucy Lou was the number one restaurant that I've ever been involved with, where we've absolutely nailed every single element. You know, like, you know, like we we open the the design was superb. Yes, the restaurant's really noisy, but we had it soundproof. So, you know, you and I could sit in the middle of the restaurant and we could have a conversation like this, and the music could be at 120 decibels. You know, it's got the ambience, but it's also got that great soundproofing. The food, the the, the menu that I developed was um, was amazing, and, you know, it was just perfect. I think that rather than... Chefs normally cook the food that they want to cook. I think at Lucy Lou, I created a menu and cooked the food that I knew everyone would love, and it was like a menu of crowd pleasers, let's say. And you know, it was just where all the elements come. and And look, I, I have to give credit to a lot of people that was involved in Lucy Lou with me. It was a real team effort, and I had a lot of. People that had even worked at Taxi back in the day and at the Smith, they all came. So, like, we had a huge team and synergy that was all on board with the concept. And I think that when when you can when you can get it right from all the different elements, that's when you hit that sort of chin chin style. You know that it's that's when it works. So it was it was a great. Thing to be involved in. It was unbelievable. So,
1: how do you see the food scene at the moment? Where Where are the opportunities?
0: Well, <laughs> well, look, I, I mean, <clears throat> the food scene at the moment, it, it's it's very, very, very tough. You know, I think that um, obviously the Asian sector is is working really, really well, um, and you know, there's a number of restaurants that are cooking modern Australian food. Really, really well as well. Um, what's the next thing? I don't know. I think that um, Australia being multicultural, I, you know, I, I look at the Indian influence. I think that you know that that's becoming more abundant around around town. And <clears throat> but I think that you know, I think that I will will always stay true to my principles and i've got um i will evolve my food again and and do something new but i think that you know with covid i think that it's it's really sort of put a spanner in the works for uh, you know a lot of a lot of businesses and a lot of people and a lot of people have got to rethink their business model
1: COVID has changed so many in the industry what what sort of impacts has the last year and a half had on you?
0: Well, look, I've i I've, <laughs> I've always been a bit dynamic with everything. So um, again, I had an option to buy out of Lucy Lou or get bought out of Lucy Lou, and I I decided that you know Lucy Lou was six years old. Um, maybe it's time for me to do something new. Maybe it's time for me to to, you know, to take a new path. So um, with much deliberation, I decided to sell. So December 2019, I was actually sold out of Lucy Liu, which is, which is one of the biggest decisions of my life. But I also think that maybe it's one of the smartest decisions of my life because um you know who would have known that that covid was going to come and obviously we all know what that's done to the industry and um you know i i've decided that i would i would take a bit of a a break from from the industry and it, and it actually makes me feel really bad that i have to look and watch my colleagues all struggling and speak to people every day Um, but I think that, um, you know, I think all we, all we can do is look, look forward, look forward to, to the next, the next thing. And I think that, you know, as an industry, we will get through this. Undoubtedly, we will get through this, but, um, it, it's, it's been devastating.
1: For someone that's made an incredible success out of change and evolution through your whole career and given the last year and a half and change happening for so many in the, in the industry, what sort of advice would you have for those about um, change and implementing change in their careers?
0: I, I think that the, the one thing that, that I've learned in life is nobody likes change and everyone will do everything that they can not to change but change is always good and out of change great things always happen and i think that everyone who's listening (laughs) you know you, you you need to 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 challenge yourself and get yourself out of your comfort zone and and make the changes necessary because that's that's how to stay alive in this industry constantly change
1: well michael we're very honored to have you on deep in the weeds today and i know that there's many many more stories you could share with us
0: i i have i've got a lot
1: i'd love to catch up with you again uh, perhaps later in the year and and take a deep dive again but we've loved having you on the show today
0: yeah love to love to and it's 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 been great being on here
1: uh, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon
0: thanks anthony
1: this is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at podcastdeepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.